Well, last week uh, we or last week we heard from our missions team as they went to uh, uh, Thailand and India. And the, the video, some of you asked, the video that, that Sam put together was just great because it kind of put everything uh, where it needed to be. And that's available up on the website. Um, you have to kind of download it first because it's kind of choppy. It's a big file. So if you just right-click, download, save as, uh, you can save that and then just watch it. And then if you don't want any more, just delete it. But uh, at least you'll be able to uh, see that if you weren't here last week. But the first of the year, um, we started a uh, series, uh, on five-week series, on the five solace of the Re- Reformation. And a couple weeks ago, we started with the first one, and that was Sola Scriptura. And we looked at that um, and kind of introduced this series. And today we're going to look at the second one. Uh, solus Christus, which means Christ alone. Uh, these are Latin terms, solus meaning alone, and then the term Christus Scriptura, or whatever you fill in the blank there. But um, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, and usually we're in the book of, uh, uh, well, we're going through the book of Romans now as a church, so we'll be back in that uh, most likely uh, when we're done with this, so it'll probably be mid, uh, the end of February, something like that. But Matthew chapter 16, I just want us to uh, look at verses 13 to 18. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18, and then we'll do a little review and some introduction, and then get along with the message. In verse 13... Uh, the gospel writer writes, Now when Jesus came in to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When we read those verses... I don't know what your background is. I come from a Catholic background. And for years, I misunderstood what those verses were saying. Because the church that I went to misunderstood what those verses were saying. Uh, And I think today, perhaps more than any other time in the history of our country, we live in a day of, of, you might call it, unparalleled spiritual confusion. There's just people all over the map. People are searching for truth, I think, like never before. They want to hear it. And they're looking for answers to the deepest questions of life in a lot of different ways. Um, and it, you can see it all over the place. You've probably heard the little slogan or seen it on a bumper sticker. Jesus is the answer. I remember... After that little sticker came out, somebody else put another sticker out that said, if Jesus is the answer, what is the question? And that's so telling, especially for us as believers, because we just assume that people understand what the question is. And they don't. Well, two years ago, or two, a couple weeks ago, we began looking at the solas of the Reformation. We started with sola scriptura, and that basically means the Bible, and only the Bible is the basis of our faith. And we talked a little bit about the background of the Reformation. Uh, A man named Martin Luther, a monk, began this Protestant movement on October 31st, 1517. And that word Protestant comes from the understanding that they were protesting They were protesting against certain teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. It's it's best, especially its doctrines as far as works and indulgences and works righteousness. 
And out of that was born the Reformation. And the Reformation is basically built on five solas. The first one is sola scriptura. Solus Christus, which we'll look at today, Christ alone. Sola gratia, which is grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. And sola deo gloria, for the, for the glory of God alone. Last, two weeks ago, we looked at the Bible alone. And we said, you know, we have to kind of define some of our terms. And we said that as a Bible-believing church, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. And just real quick, just so we understand what we're talking about, verbal basically means inspiration extends to the very words of the text. Plenary, we understood that, that means inspiration extends to every part of the Bible. And then inspiration means that this text that we believe in so mightily was literally breathed out by God and written down by men using their own gifts and their own words and their own personal styles. And yet there were still the words of God, not the words of men. And from that message, we kind of drew seven crucial implications. First of all, we said that the Bible is the objective word of God. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's the word of God. Secondly, we said the Bible is the supreme revelation of God's truth. I don't care if you're shaving in the morning and and God gives you a new revelation. If it doesn't line up with the Bible, it's wrong. Because there is no new revelation. We have all the revelation that God is going to give us. It's contained within the pages of Scripture. Thirdly, the Bible's message of salvation is plain enough so that anyone can understand it. It's not just meant for the high and mighty, the intellectual. As a matter of fact, it's a pretty simple message. Fourthly, we said that no creed or counsel or word from any pope or priest or pastor nor any private prophecy or supposed word from God nor any vision or dream or modern day revelation can overturn, add to, or subtract from the truth of the Bible. That's so crucial in the day and age we live in because people are having all kinds of dreams and all kinds of stuff. And a lot of times they don't line up with what the word of God says. Fifthly, the scripture judges the church. The church does not judge scripture. Sixth, we said that since the Bible is the supreme revelation of God's truth, our supreme duty as Christians is to know the Bible, believe the Bible, preach the Bible, obey the Bible, study the Bible. This is God's gift to us. It's his word to our hearts. And then seventhly, we said that the meekest Christian who stands on the truth of God's word has more wisdom than the so-called wise men of our age. And we talked about some implications of the Christian faith, whether it's the different moral issues we're facing today, way of salvation, things like that. Well, I want to introduce our message for today, Solus Christus, by asking a simple question. What is fundamentalism? Because there was a day in the age of the church when you said you were a fundamentalist, that was a good thing. And unfortunately, people have taken that word, just like they take all, all the words, and they hijacked it. And so a lot of times, even at pastor's conferences, they'll say, well, what kind of church? I say, well, it's a Bible church. And even pastors will look at me cross-eyed and go, well, you're not a fundamentalist, are you? <laughs> and I have to say, well, it depends what you mean by a fundamentalist. Fundamentalism, fundamentalist is not a bad word. It's not, it doesn't mean that you're holed up in the mountain somewhere with your shotgun waiting for the government to come take you away. Okay? It doesn't mean that you believe in a flat earth or whatever. It, it, it doesn't mean anything like that. The word fundamental can basically describe any religious impulse that adheres to its basic tenets. Fundamentalism, for the purpose of our discussion today, is basically an understanding within the church that holds to the essentials of the Christian faith. That doesn't sound bad to me. However, that term is used in derogatory ways today, even among Christians. I did a little research, and it's, it's, it's interesting that the fundamentalist movement actually has its roots all the way back to Princeton Theological Seminary. 
And what it did, it had an association with the graduates of that institution. And two wealthy church laymen commissioned 97 conservative church leaders from all over the Western world to write 12 volumes of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. Then they published these writings and they distributed distributed these writings, over 300,000 copies of them, free of charge to pastors and ministers and anybody else involved in church leadership. The books were entitled The Fundamentals. <laughs> and they're still in print today. I think you can get them in a two-volume set. See, fundamentalism was formed in the, the late 19th century by conservative Christians. D.L. Moody, Warfield, others. And they did that because they were concerned about the moral values that were being eroded by the modern error. The belief that human beings, rather than God, create, improve, and reshape the environment with the aid of scientific knowledge, technology, and practical experimentation. In addition to fighting the influence of modernism, the church was struggling with a higher criticism that came out of the, the German mind thought, mind, thinking a lot of time, which sought to deny the very uh, basics of Scripture. They thought to deny the inerrancy of Scripture. And so fundamentalism is built on five tenets of the Christian faith. And I'm just sharing all this. It's not even your notes. But it's, it's important to understand because it's not a bad word. Well, what are these five tenets of the Christian faith? Well, first of all, that the Bible is literally true. We discussed this last two weeks ago. But associated with this is, is the belief that the Bible is inerrant, that it's without error, that it's free of all contradictions. Secondly, is the virgin birth and the deity of Christ. A fundamentalist would believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and conceived by the Holy Spirit and that he was and is the Son of God, fully human, fully divine. Thirdly, a fundamentalist would adhere to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. Fundamentalism teaches that salvation is obtained only through God's grace and human faith in Christ's crucifixion for the sins of mankind. Fourthly, fourth tenet of Christianity and even fundamentalism is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That on the third day after his crucifixion, that Jesus rose from the grave and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And then the fifth one is the authenticity of Jesus' miracles as recorded in Scripture and the literal premillennial second coming of Christ to earth. Those are the basic tenets the five basic tenets of the Christian faith and even fundamentalism. John MacArthur makes these points. He says, fundamental doctrine comes from Scripture. He points out in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that the Scriptures, Paul was telling Timothy, are able to make you wise unto salvation. He doesn't say somebody's book. He doesn't say human philosophy. He says the scriptures are able to make you wise. In other words, if a doctrine is essential for salvation, we can learn it from the Bible. The written word of God, therefore, must contain all doctrine that is truly fundamental. 2 Timothy 3.17, we went over this last week a little bit, says that the scriptures are able to make us adequate, equipped, for every good work. See, if, if there were necessary doctrines not revealed in Scripture, what would happen? You would have to say, well, the Scripture is not adequate. Because there's, there's doctrines over here that aren't found in the Scriptures. But that's not the case. Psalm 19.7, the psalmist wrote, The law of the, the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. That means that Scripture is sufficient. Apart from the truths 
that God reveals through his word to us, there is no essential spiritual truth. There's no fundamental doctrine. There's nothing essential to soul restoration. You don't need to look beyond the written word of God for any essential doctrines. They're all found within the pages of Scripture. That's what Scripture alone means. Now, that's in stark contrast to the church that I grew up in, the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, that church basically commonly threatens eternal damnation for anyone who questions the decrees of the Pope or the dogma of the church traditions or councils. In other words, either you agree with them or you're anathema. For example, in Canon 1 of the Council of Trent, the seventh session, it pronounces anathema on anyone, which means, kind of, you're, you're done, uh, on anyone who says there is who says that there are more or less than the seven sacraments established by the council. So what's a sacrament? A sacrament is the thing that the Catholic Church believes earns grace from God. You have seven of them. That means if, if, the, if a Catholic even questions the sacraments of maybe confirmation or penance or extreme unction, anything like that, by the way, which are mentioned nowhere in Scripture. That person is subject to excommunication. And in the eyes of the Roman Catholic Church, is fit for eternal damnation. And they throw these anathemas around easily. If you disagree with anything that they say as far as these sacred doctrines go that are built upon the tradition of popes and people who've gone before in that church, you're anathema. You don't have an opportunity to question. That's the whole problem that, that the Reformation seek to solve. Because the Catholic Church took the word of God and they said, okay, we will interpret this for you. You cannot read this. This is for us. We are the holy ones. We will take care of the holy writings. And the everyday person didn't have a copy of Scripture. It was illegal to have a copy of Scripture on certain occasions. I mean, stop and think about that. That's, that's hard to understand. Think if you came to this church and I said, okay, surrender all your Bibles, I will tell you what you need to know. But that's exactly what people did. And so it's important to understand that fundamental doctrines come from Scripture. In Scripture alone. Secondly, John MacArthur points out that fundamental doctrines are clear in Scripture. Not only do they come from Scripture, but they're clear. It, it, you don't have to have a gray area. You don't, it doesn't take rocket scientists. There's no secret knowledge. It's not a hidden formula to understand what the doctrines are that are necessary for the Christian faith in the Bible. There's no key necessary to unlock the teachings of the Bible. As I said earlier, the, the, the truth and teaching of the Word of God is not aimed at learned intellectuals who have degree after degree after degree after the name. It's simple enough even for a child. Matthew eleven twenty five. it says that at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. See, the Word of God is not a puzzle, beloved. It doesn't speak to us in riddles or, or cryptic messages or mysteries. It's plain. It's obvious. But you have to have spiritual ears to hear it. You have to be born from above. You have to be born again. You have to have the Spirit of God residing within you because you've trusted in the sacrifice of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 19.7 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. See, being a simpleton is not always a bad thing. You know, I classify myself as a simpleton sometimes. You know, I hear people talk sometimes, and it's like, what is that word? Does that word even exist? I don't know about you, but I get irritated with people that are talking to me or they're teaching 
And the whole time they're teaching, they're using words that are a mile long. And, you know, it takes them, you know, 30 seconds to pronounce the word. And then they say, well, let me tell you what that means. It's like, why don't you just tell me what it means? Forget the word. You know, you're not impressing me. Just put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Make it easy for everybody. So they're in Scripture. They're they're clear in Scripture. Thirdly, fundamental doctrines include everything essential to saving faith. 1 something to be considered a fundamental doctrine, it needs to be essential for saving faith. And Scripture is full of statements that identify the terms of salvation and marks of genuine faith. In Hebrews 11.6, it says, Without faith it is what? Impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. That verse makes faith essential to having that right relationship with God. Well, fundamental doctrines include every doctrine we are forbidden to deny. Fundamental doctrines include every doctrine that we are forbidden to deny. In other words, there are certain doctrines that as a Christian, if you deny that doctrine, you're not a Christian. You can boldly say that based upon what the Word of God says. Now, you know, there's, there's certain teachings of Scripture that carry threats of even damnation for those that deny them or don't believe them. Other ideas are expressly stated to be affirmed only by unbelievers. But when we talk about fundamental doctrines, these are things that, as a believer, you need to hold on to. You need to believe this. If you don't believe it, you're probably not a believer. We've been going through the study of 1 John on Wednesday nights. And we've seen some of the fundamental doctrines come out. The doctrine of sin is a fundamental article of the faith. Because in 1 John 1, 6, the Bible says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. It condemns the idea that, you know what, it's just free grace, just do whatever you want. The idea that as Christians, we're under no law at all. That's an antinomian kind of mindset today, even for some people within the church. Well, you know, God's forgiven everything, so I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. You're, you're, you're held to this rule of law. You're held to live in accord with what God's word points out for us to live by. So the doctrine of sin would be one of those items. Another statement that comes out of a humanistic philosophy today is that people are basically good. We hear that all the time. Well, he's a good guy. Man, I just wish he would come to Christ. <laughs> Why does he have to come to Christ if he's a good guy? And that's what 1 John covers too. Verse 8, chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is what? Not in us. It doesn't say, well, there may be a little truth. No, it says there's no truth in you at all. If you can't admit that you're a sinner. Because people are not basically good. The Bible said that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. He says in verse 10 of 1 John chapter 1, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Doubles down on it. The, remember, John is who? He, he, he's the apostle of love. And yet he's saying some very difficult things. Why? Because he's the apostle of love. See, don't be deceived into these feel-good messages you hear today on TV and radio and everything. That Oh, boy, that just makes me feel so warm and cuddly. But what does it do for you spiritually? Is it building you up in your faith? Or is it making you more like the world? Is it convicting your heart and your soul? Or is it just allowing sin to continue in your life?
1 Corinthians 16.22 makes love for Christ a fundamental issue. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Wow. Sounds like the Catholic Church. (laughs) If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. In the similar verse in 1 Corinthians 12.3, Paul says that no one speaking by the Spirit of God can call Jesus accursed. You see where the focus is. It's, it's on the Son of God here. Another truth is the truth of the incarnation. It's a fundamental doctrine. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, because they were dealing with Gnosticism back in the day, and they believed that the Gnostics basically believed that the Spirit was good and everything physical was evil. So when Jesus came along and said, Well, I am God in a bod, they said, That's impossible. God could never indwell an evil body because it's material. They denied the incarnation of Christ. And John addresses that in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. He says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is, has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit, listen, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. In other words, it's against Christ. In 2 John 7, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. See, those verses, by implication, condemn those who deny the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because if he was not virgin born, he would be merely what? A human. He wasn't... He wouldn't have been the eternal God come in the flesh, which Scripture proclaims him to be. Another fundamental doctrine, an idea here, is that fundamental doctrines are all summed up in one person, that being the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the way the, the reason I say that is because Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, he says this, No man can lay a foundation other than that which was laid, which is what? Jesus Christ. See, when we read those texts out of Matthew 16, I was always taught, well, yeah, you know, the first pope was Peter, and upon the, the foundation of Peter, that's what the church was, was built. Well, that's not what it's saying. Do you think that God is going to build uh, his whole future ex- existence on earth through the church? The thing that his son came and died and, and, and to purchase the saints. And he's going to put all that on somebody like Peter? Really? I mean, come on. I mean, Peter was a great guy. Depending on which day of the week you met him. You know, in school, we were taught, one of my professors said, yeah, we we refer to Peter as Pendulumic Peter. Over here, he's, I'll never deny you, Lord. And then he's hiding like a little girl over here. You know, it just depends on which day you catch him. And you know what? Not to criticize Peter, because a lot of us are the same way, right? So, I mean, we can't be critical of him. But he obviously was not a stable factor to build the whole church upon. Well, what is the church built upon? It's it's built on the statement that Peter made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The church is built upon Christ. He is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. That's what Scripture tells us. And so today, when we come to our... Second, sola, solus Christus, Christ and Christ alone is the object of our faith. We have to put this in perspective. We want to pronounce Christ as the exclusive Savior. Now that creates a lot of problems in the day and age we live. We live in what we would call a postmodern age. Or some people would even call the information age. And basically... If that, that, that term basically means that we live in an age in which our culture has largely abandoned any notion of truth, of absolute truth. They just don't believe that. 
And years ago, most Americans shared a, a common moral fabric that was based on nothing other than the teachings of the Bible. That's what it was based upon. The Judeo-Christian tradition. That's what helped us to understand what was right and what was wrong. There were some things that were permitted in society. There were other things that were not. They allowed us as a people and a culture to really come together even from diverse backgrounds and to live together in peace. Because there was kind of a standard of behavior. Well, today in 2017, the consensus basically has disappeared. That's why a lot of Americans, even Christians, you ask them how they feel about abortion or pornography or adultery or, or the idea of divorce or, or gay rights. They're all over the map. Why? Because they're not adhering to what the rule that God has already laid down for us. See, in the old days, we didn't have to debate those kind of issues. Because why? We shared a, an, a, a value system that taught us that, you know what? It's wrong to kill an unborn baby. That's wrong. Or that adultery is not always a good idea. It's evil. That homosexuality is not something that God created men and women to experience. That it's shameful. And that pornography corrupts morality across the board. One writer said this, If the old trinity was the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the new trinity is this, tolerance, diversity, and pluralism. All truth is relative. What do we worship? As a society, we worship tolerance. We celebrate diversity. We praise pluralism. And you know what? Woe to the man or woman who dares to speak out against the new trinity. Because there's no compromise that's possible between those who believe God has spoken and those who either don't believe it or don't accept it or don't think moral judgments should inform public policy. Now against all that, against the prevailing moral relativism of our day, you have the exclusive claims regarding Jesus Christ. And this flies in the face of our culture. So let's look at some of these. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That he is the only son of God. There's no other. There's only one. That sounds a little exclusive to me. But that's what the word of God says. That he gave his one and only son. That if you want eternal life, you better believe in him. Or you're going to perish. Doesn't sound like a tolerant view to me. Not only is he the only son of God, he is the only name. Acts 4.12, we know this verse, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, what? By which we must be saved. What does that mean? This isn't the price is right. You know, we don't have Carol Barrow up here standing in front of a curtain. Do you want this one? One, two, or three. It doesn't work that way. And yet our society, in even most of our churches, has kind of enveloped that kind of thinking. And so we just want to love up on everybody. We don't want to teach doctrine. We don't want to teach the, teach the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, because that may turn some visitors away. And we just want to fill the church up. We just want to have a big party here on Sunday morning. So we can say our church is full. So we're willing to compromise whatever it takes. I say to that, no. No, no, no. 
We're going to stand upon the truth of the Word of God. And if that means there's nobody here on Sunday morning, so be it. I'll be preaching to myself. But there's something to be said to being faithful to the sovereign God who created us and to His Word, His gift to us as His church. So He's the only Son of God. He's the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. Thirdly, he is the only way. John 14, 6. You hear this a lot of times at funerals. But Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, who? No one comes to the Father except through one of these doors. No, through me. I mean, do you understand that this was Jesus Christ himself saying this? This was the same guy that most religious people say, well, he was a good teacher. Oh, he was a prophet. He was one of the prophets. I mean, what do they do with this? We must have had a bad day. Maybe, you know, maybe he didn't really mean that. Or No, it's pretty simple. I mean, it, like I said, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what I am the way means. He doesn't even say, I'm one of many ways. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Ken taught about this several weeks ago. This is so important that we understand this. Why? Because as a church, you know what? We have to stop kowtowing to the society we live in and be willing to stand up on the truth of the word of God and say, no, this is true. And then be willing to take the barrage of arrows and whatever else comes our way. Because we stand upon the word of God. Fourthly, he is the only mediator between God and man. And this comes into play as we get further into this solus Christus. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. So, what that verse is saying is that, you know what? Here's man down here on earth. God's up in heaven. How are you going to bridge that gap? There's only one way. There's only one bridge. That is the man, Jesus Christ. That is the work of Christ. That is who Christ was. He is the mediator. What does a mediator do? He mediates. Not difficult. Tries to bring these two parties together. See, there's no way that you're going to ever get together with your God and Creator unless you go through the only mediator that there is. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't do an end around. You can't say, well, you know, I'll go over here to talk to Buddha for a while. Maybe he'll let... No! It's not going to work. It's very clear. Exclusively. Christ is the mediator. The fifth thing here is that he is the only sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10, 12 says this. Look at this. But when this priest had offered for all time, who's the priest? Jesus Christ. He's our high priest. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, just one, just took one. He doesn't have to come week after week. And offer himself again and again and again. He doesn't need some priest to pull him out of heaven. And and through the, the, the sacrament of communion. Lay him on the altar. And sacrifice Christ over and over and over every week. That is heresy. That is wrong from every way you look at it. Because that verse says, when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. What does that mean? That means it's done. What did he say? What were his last words? It's finished. It's over. You don't have to do anything else. I mean, I don't know about you, but I get excited about that. That you know what? When I am saved when i am secure in christ i am just that there's nothing more that i can do to be more saved i mean is that a good feeling i mean this is a wonderful feeling you know what if i have a horrible day and boy things just go down the tubes at the end of the day i know that you know what i'm still saved why because my salvation is not based on that 
My salvation is based on the work of Christ. And that doesn't motivate you to run out of here and sin more, saying, well, who cares then? No, that should motivate you to what? Live for Him more and more. You want to be the best representative of our Lord and Savior you can be in this lost and dying world. Why? Because that may draw one or two other people along with you. He is the only sacrifice for sin. And I would just say that, you know what? Unfortunately, today the church has taken those basic exclusive claims from Christ and his word. And unfortunately, they have watered them down. They have watered them down drastically. And I'm just here to say we don't have a right to water them down. I mean, you can reject them if you want. You can call them narrow-minded. You can say, you know what, they don't apply to us today. But the fact still remains that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is utterly the exclusive Savior. He's the only way. He and he alone stands, and no one can be compared with him. And I know that flies in the face of society. It flies in the face of our contemporary thinking. I mean, to say to someone that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I mean, people just don't get it. They don't want to hear that. I mean, that's like intellectual suicide to most intellectuals today, if you were to make a claim like that. If you dare to proclaim what the Bible really says about Jesus, you risk being branded a fool, a nut, worse, maybe even a narrow-minded fundamentalist. (laughs) You could be pigeonholed, you could be criticized, you could be ridiculed, you could be ostracized. But you know what? We don't have a right to pretend to follow Jesus unless the Jesus we are following is really the Christ, the Jesus of the New Testament. It's expressly that exclusivity of Christ that separates him from every other religious leader in the world, beloved. I would even say that it's, it's, it's better to reject Christ altogether than to try to water down some of his exclusive claims. Let's just call it for what it is. You have to come face to face with what the writings of Scripture tell us. He is not one among many. Picking a Savior is not like going down and figuring out what jar of pickles you want. It doesn't work that way. I feel like a dill pickle today. Or... See, we can't be cavalier about these things. These are, these are things that where eternal life hangs in the balance of souls. All truth is narrow, including the truth about Jesus Christ. Think about it. Two plus two equals four. Doesn't equal five. It doesn't equal six. It doesn't even equal seven. It equals four. You can say all day long, you don't believe it. It doesn't change the fact that two plus two equals four. See, Jesus is either who he says he was in the New Testament or else he's not the son of God at all. In fact, he's just like one of the gods that our society creates day in and day out. You might say, that sounds intolerant. I don't know about you, but I I don't always think that being intolerant is so bad. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to go to San Jose Airport and I'm going to get on an airplane. If I got on the airplane... I'm giving my ticket to the stewardess and I get on the airplane. I hear the mechanic talking to the the pilot in the cockpit there as I'm walking by. And he goes, well, you know, engine two could blow up at any time, but I think we can get one more flight out of it. 
I might pause and I might say, well, wait a minute. This is not, you know, it's good to be intolerant in that thing. Let's just go by what the flight manual says and, and let's ground this aircraft, right? See, the truth about Jesus and about who he is, that's the living foundation of the church. And I don't just mean this church, I mean the universal church. When Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, he was saying that, you know what, this rock, this this church would be built upon men, upon women who steadfastly proclaim the truth about who he was because he's the rock that the church is built upon. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. We are not. Well, secondly, how does this play into so many of the contemporary counterfeits quickly that we see around us today? What are some of these counterfeits? Uh, Spiritual counterfeits, I call them. There's four, briefly. The first one is Christ plus the church. In other words... There's, there's some belief today, even among Christians, that somehow by joining a church or going through the membership class or maintaining regular membership, somehow if they're a loyal supporter of the church, that that's their way to heaven. Trust me, you could be sitting here till the, from the time you were born till the time you die. If your hope is not in Christ and Christ alone, one day you will be in hell. Because you would have forsook the only answer for the forgiveness of your sins. Even though you may have served the church for years. It's not Christ plus the church. That's a counterfeit. Second counterfeit is Christ plus baptism. There's a lot of people even within Christianity that feel salvation depends on baptism. Well, if you're baptized, then you're saved. Whether it's at the hands of a priest when you're just an infant, you know, you have no clue what's going on. They're sprinkling water on your head. Or you're up here in the baptismal and you're getting dunked in our baptism. Or as we're going to do uh, tomorrow afternoon, baptize our grandkids in the ocean. Okay, it doesn't matter. If you're thinking somehow that your baptism has something to do with your salvation, you're wrong. Because then baptism would become what? It would become a work. And my heart breaks for the thief on the cross. Because Jesus must have lied to him when he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because last time I checked, he wasn't baptized. It's a counterfeit. Do we believe in baptism? Definitely. Believer's baptism? Definitely. It was modeled for us in scripture. People come to Christ. They they follow Christ through the waters of baptism. Jesus himself, as an example, was baptized. That's nothing to do with your salvation. It's a testimony of what God has done in your life. It's a picture of you dying to yourself and coming out of that water renewed in Christ. But it's a picture. I remember one time we had a baptism here. A church was having a baptism. And they had people up there who were being baptized that probably had no right to be baptized, to be honest with you. And they played this baptism up that, you know... The pastor said, well, you know, I've been in a lot of baptisms and sometimes I don't want, I just want to warn you, some things happen sometimes. You know, people see lights and, you know, they'll see, I'm sitting back there in sound booth, like, why do we let these people use our church? But anyway, it's like, do I kill the mic now or what? It is a small group of people. But he built this thing up and so the first guy comes out and, you know, well, you know, why don't you share your testimony? Well, I want to be baptized. Okay. <laughs> do you have, do you have, well, no, you know, they said you sign up and I, I want to be baptized. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, okay. Well, I'll baptize you. <laughs> and then nothing happened. And he went through three or four people and their testimonies were nil at best. And nothing happened. There was no lights. There was no, nothing. See, I mean, baptism is just a, a, a symbol of our willingness to follow Christ. Thirdly, Christ plus Mary or the saints. And I put that in there just because of my Catholic background. A lot of Catholics, whether they're conscientious about this or just unconsciously, have added Mary and the saints to their faith in Jesus Christ. And they've done that because that's what the church teaches, in all honesty. They teach Mariology. They teach the worship of Mary. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Mary was the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. But she was Mary. 
She was a sinner just like you and I. And unfortunately, the Catholic Church doesn't teach that. When the Catholic Church talks about the Immaculate Conception, a lot of people who aren't familiar with the Catholic Church think, well, they're talking about, you know, Jesus being born of a virgin. Well, yes. But they're also talking about Mary's Immaculate Conception, which is taught nowhere. And Mary herself proclaimed Christ as her Savior. So it's kind of, you know, it's a mixed up bag of counterfeits. And that's why it's important to understand solus Christus, that you know what? We have Christ and Christ alone, and that's all we need. We don't need Mary. We don't need the saints. We don't need to pray to no other God. Somehow, people believe that by doing those things, they can earn God's grace. Things like lighting candles or burning incense, making a special offering in the name of a saint, offering masses for the dead. It goes on and on and on. That's a counterfeit. That's not what Scripture teaches. Fourthly, Christ plus good works of any kind. And this kind of breaks out of the Catholic model that we're using here, but, but even just in, in, in our own church. If you're trusting in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on Calvary, if you're trusting in your own good works, if somehow you think that you know working in the fellowship hall or working in Sunday school or helping here with the grounds and serving in the sound, somehow that earns you God's grace, it doesn't. I mean, we appreciate it. We want you to help out. But if you're doing it for the wrong reason, stop. Stop. Because good works of any kind will not save you. Some people are of the persuasion that, you know, they're, they're under the, they know that Jesus must save them. But they also believe that there's kind of something they have to do to, to close the deal. I mean, the Bible is, is very, very clear. We sang a song in Christ alone. I mean, that trips a lot of people up. Everybody who claims to be a Christian understands that Jesus must play some part in our salvation. That's what they say. See, the question is the some part. See, that's not the same as saying, no, he plays the only part. And it's because of errant teaching of a man-centered salvation that we have today that we choose God and, and, and we do this and we do that and I came to Christ. And, and I understand sometimes those phrases are used innocently, but what I would ask you to do is to be more diligent about that and to say that, no, I didn't find God, he found me. That he saved me. That he brought me to himself. To trust in Jesus means to trust so completely in him that you are willing, listen to this, that you are willing to go to hell if Jesus alone cannot save you. That's what it means to trust in Jesus. To trust in Jesus Christ means to trust so completely in him that you are willing even to go to hell if Jesus alone cannot save you. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Or we aren't going to heaven at all. James Montgomery Boyce said this, Solus Christus means that Jesus has done it all so that now no merit on the part of man, no merit of the saints, no work of ours performed either here or in purgatory can add to the completed saving work. In fact, any attempt to add to it is a perversion of the gospel and indeed no gospel at all. Nothing needs to be added to that statement. Both Luther and Calvin would gladly say amen to those words. Jesus is the king we need. Implications that you can come directly to Christ without any human mediators. That's a central implication of the Protestant Reformation. You don't need to go through any church 
our church or any other church. You can go to God. You just go home. You get on your knees and you come before God. And you ask Christ to save you. He will. Because he's the only mediator. You don't need to go to a priest or a pastor or anybody else. When Christ died on the cross, secondly, he completed the work of salvation. He said, it is finished. It is finished. Paid in full is the idea. There's nothing you can add to your own salvation. Thirdly, saving faith is nothing less than total reliance on Christ alone, wholly apart from human works or human effort of any kind. And then fourthly, when Christ saves us, we are completely and eternally saved. Salvation does not depend on us. In fact, it's entirely outside of us. And since we're totally dependent on Jesus Christ, we can rest assured that those whom God saves, he saves forever. The God who cannot change will not change his mind toward us. He who called us is faithful, and he will finish the work of salvation he began in us. And just as Christians going out into a lost and dying world, I leave this with you. You have to preach Christ. Don't preach self-improvement. Because apart from Christ, there is no hope of salvation. Apart from God, there is no basis for self-esteem. And no sure foundation for self-improvement. I mean, you can speak about becoming a better husband or father, teach people how to learn a larger income, make a larger income, whatever, overcome their bad habits. One theologian said that's kind of like rearranging the, the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's not going to make any difference in the end. The boat's going down. When it, when it comes to Jesus, I think too many people have a hand grenade faith. They think, you know what? Close is good enough. <laughs> it's not. Most people believe in Jesus just a little bit. But they believe that Jesus plus something will save them. When you scratch under the surface, they don't really believe in Jesus alone as their only hope of salvation at all. But to believe in him 95%, beloved, to say, you know, I believe in Jesus 95%, you're guaranteed that you're 100% lost. Closing, let me share with you five words that will take you all the way to heaven. If you take these five words to heart and you make them part of your life, if you'll say them, from your heart, believe them, rest upon them. These, these five words will take you to heaven when you die. It's simply this, Jesus only, and only Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us. Father, so many people are asking the question, well, how can I find God? We're to tell them Jesus is the answer. What about peace? How can I find peace? Jesus is the answer. Who can forgive our sins? Jesus is the answer. Who can give us new life? Jesus is the answer. Who opens the door to heaven? Jesus. How can I get rid of my guilt? Jesus. Who can save a sinner like me? Jesus. Who can put the shambled pieces of my life back together? The answer is Jesus to all those questions. In the most deep questions of life if you want to meet Jesus you simply have to do one thing you simply have to run to the cross run to the cross lay hold of that bloody cross upon which the son of God died and never let go If you want your questions answered, your sins forgiven, if you want to be sure of heaven, then make sure that you go to Jesus and Jesus alone. Father, we pray that you would lead us and guide us in our faith. Pray today that you would just bless us as our time over in the fellowship hall. And uh, Father, we, um, 
We thank you for the gift of your son, that he secured our salvation, even before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. And so, Father, we pray today that as we leave this place as believers in you, that we would feel built up in our faith, that we would feel bold, a boldness that can only come to you to go out and to encounter a lost and dying world. Lord, help us not to compromise. Help us not to become sheepish in our attempt to proclaim Christ. But Lord, help us to be bold and to stand up for the truth that you've given to us. And Lord, we pray for anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would show them their need of a Savior, that you would convict their heart of their sin, that you would show them that Christ is the only answer, and that they would humbly come to you, come to the cross, broken, repentant, willing to turn from their sin to the Savior, asking you to change them, to turn them into the person that you desire them to be. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that when prayed from a humble, repentant heart, God will answer. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.